Okay, welcome everyone to uh, web, uh, to Web Yeshiva to uh, Nidarim one week at a time. Um, one second, I'm just going to share my screen with everyone so you can see it. Uh, thank you everyone for, um, oh wait, sorry. Uh, one second. Sorry, one more time. Let's try that again. <laughs> Technical difficulties. Okay, here we go. Uh, I am now sharing my screen. Okay, um, so welcome everyone uh, to Masachet Nadarim, one week at a time. Um, this is our third class. Uh, we are going to be reviewing DAF 13 through 20. So I gave you a bonus DAF today because Next week, we're going to go back to our uh, regular time of Tuesday night. So I didn't want to have to do nine DAF next week. So we're going to do eight DAF this week and eight DAF next week. So let's begin with DAF 13. Um, we were discussing different topics, different uh, frames of reference for our vows. Uh, and the DAF, DAF 13 tells us that you can prohibit an object by comparing it to a korban, to a sacrifice, um, but only particular ones and not to everything. So the Gemara tells us you cannot connect it to the Bechor, which is the firstborn of our flock, um, because the Bechor, if you remember, we have seen this before, um, when it is born, it is already sanctified. Uh, and therefore, because it was not sanctified through a vow, uh, it cannot uh, affect another vow, uh, which we're going to see uh, throughout today's class. Uh, that is going to be the theme. Um, the Gemara continues and says that when one compares uh, an item to, let's say, a lamb or the trees or uh, the actual altar, meaning all the things that were used uh, in the temple. Uh, so as long as you say uh, the certain a certain uh, formulation, so then it works. Um, Right. According to uh, Rabbi Meir, it does work, right? You say this should be like the trees, right? It seem not regular trees, but the, the wood that was going to be used as a sacrifice or let it seem right to the trees or like the trees, it seem. So we're going to see again throughout this Masechet, um, where we're using language, uh, we have a word that we want to compare it to, and we're going to see different permutations of that word. So again, we had etzim, trees, le'etzim, ke'etzim, right? So similar language, but each a little bit different. Um, so again, um, let's go to, let's go to the next Mishnah on Daf 13. Um, the Mishnah tells us that if you say the word korban, Right. Uh, this uh, this is korban. Right. Or you say right, which means sacrifice or ola. Right. A specific sacrifice or chatat, a sin offering. Right. And then you say uh, right, uh, like a sin offering, that which I eat from you. Meaning, again, this is complicated language, but the idea is, I want to forbid myself from eating from you. So I say it should be like a sacrifice. Um, so the Mishnah tells us that is valid. Uh, and again, the language is important to understand that when the Mishnah says it's valid, it means that the item becomes asur, it becomes prohibited. We're used to thinking asur means, oh, that's bad. Uh, here, asur means you have... Um, you have uh, successfully created a vow uh, by prohibiting this item. Um, Rabbi Huda says, no, it's actually invalid unless you say le korban. It should be like a korban. If you don't have the lamed, if you don't have that that the, that letter, so then just saying sacrifice is not enough. You have to say it should be like the sacrifice. Uh, and again, um, other ways of saying the same thing, right? Ha korban, the korban, ke korban, like a korban. Again, all of these uh, are valid. And then again, we have this double language. If you say it should be like a korban that I won't eat from you, 
And those of you who enjoy double negatives, right? So some say that that doesn't work. Um, Rabbi Meir says it does work. It is valid. And now I'm not, uh, I'm not allowed to eat from you, right? Rabbi Meir explains it as I say, like a korban, comma, it will be forbidden to you, right? I, to me, I cannot eat from it. So that's our Mishnah. So the Gemara explains, um, again, ha, Korban, right, or high korban, that one would be invalid, um, because again, right, you're saying that it should be, uh, like, uh, like, right, uh, using the word more like a statement, like, ah, by the korban, I promise to not eat from you, as opposed to saying it should be like a korban, uh, and therefore it is not a valid, uh, vow. Um, okay, next, Mishnah, uh, what if we say I'm forbidding my mouth from speaking to you, right? Konam, konam is a word of vowing. Uh, and you say, my mouth is forbidden from speaking for you, to you, or my hands from doing work, or my feet from walking. Uh, this is valid. Now, if you remember in the beginning of the Masechet, uh, we talked about the difference between a neder, a vow, and a shvu'ah, an oath. And we said a vow, uh, falls onto a thing, an object, whereas an oath, a shvua, is on the person. Um, so the Mishnah tells us, right, I can't say that I vow, I take a neder to not speak with you because that's about me. And that's not a vow. That's an oath. That's a shvua. However, if I say my mouth is not allowed to speak with you. My mouth is an object, uh, and therefore it does work. Um, the Gemara explains, right, again, uh, an important concept, vows uh, at times, which we're going to see, at times are more stringent, more chamur than oaths, right? A vow works on a mitzvah. We saw this last week that I can take a vow to do a mitzvah um, or not to do a mitzvah, right? We'll, I think we talked about that last week about the sukkah, um, but oaths do not work on a mitzvah. However, right, oaths, uh, so that's how vows are more stringent. Oaths are more stringent because they affect things with substance or without substance, right? Again, this idea of walking, talking, that could be an oath that cannot be a vow. Uh, and here the Gemara says, how does our Mishnah create a vow on speaking? And as I mentioned before, right, it is because... Um, the the Mishnah is saying you're taking a vow on your mouth, on your feet, on your hands from doing work, and not on the act itself. And with that, we finish our first uh, chapter, our first parak of uh, Masachet Nedarim. Let us start, and we're going to finish the second chapter. So the next Mishnah tells us um, the following are ineffective vows. Right till now, we have done effective vows, so the following are ineffective. And again, important to understand, it means that the thing is mutar, meaning if I say that this, right, this water is like a korban, or if I use the wrong language, I wanted to make it prohibited, asur, I make it, if it doesn't work, it is still permitted to me. I can still drink from it. So what are ineffective vows? If I say that the food should be like chulin, right? What's chulin? We said uns not sanctified food, regular food, right? This water should be like regular water. Okay, great. Regular water I can drink. So now this water is like regular water. Or it should be like non-kosher food. Uh, we'll, we'll explain why that works, why it doesn't work. Uh, or it should be like idolatry. Uh, these are things that are prohibited to me. Uh, however, they do not create effective vows, um, or other things that I can't eat. Let's say nivela, right? Uh, uh, what we would call like roadkill, like, uh, something, an animal that died without proper, um, slaughter, uh, or chala, not chala you buy at the bakery, but the chala that you take off, uh, that goes to the kohen, to the priest, or to truma, again, from our tithe, not ties, but our truma, the gifts that we give to the Kohen. Um, if you liken your food to that, um, it doesn't work. It's not a valid oath. Um, let's continue. The Mishnah says that if a man says to his wife, you're, you're like, you're to me like my mother, 
right? Don't ever say this. Um, but right, you're forbidden to me like my mother is forbidden to me. I don't think any woman would appreciate that. Um, so the, the Mishnah says, what do we do? Um, we, interesting, the vow is not effective, but he still needs to annul his vow. And we'll see why uh, at the end. Um, because, uh, sorry, the Mishnah here even says it's degrading to his mother, also degrading to his wife, but okay, fine. Uh, right? It's not very nice. So you shouldn't speak this way. And therefore, we're going to make you annul the vow, even though it didn't really work. Okay, let's go to Da 14. The Gemara tells us, um, why doesn't it work when I say that this is chulin? Because chulin are not prohibited. So therefore, this is not prohibited. Um, the, the, the Gemara tells us, right, the verses that teach uh, neder, vows, says, right, Right? How do I create an effective vow? I have to uh, um, create a comparison to something that is prohibited, but it needs to be something that was prohibited because of a vow and not something that is already prohibited to me. Meaning idolatry is prohibited, non-kosher food prohibited. Therefore, comparing something to that is not an effective vow. Um, again, we said um, when you compare the wife to the mother, uh, we said it's inherently Right. It does, it, it's invalid. Um, so maybe because again, your mother is inherently, uh, prohibited to you or it doesn't work again on a biblical level, but maybe on a rabbinic level, we said you still have to get it annulled, uh, because again, not an appropriate, uh, statement, uh, or maybe Right, a Torah scholar doesn't need to annul this vow, but an Am Haaretz, right, someone who is more ignorant in the laws does need to get it, uh, annulled. Um, okay. Uh, and here the Gemara says that we have a machloket, we have a difference of opinion if you compare it to something that is inherently forbidden, a davar ha'asur, do you need to get it annulled? Even though I know that it is an invalid vow, do I need to get it annulled anyway? Um, the Gemara adds here that you can take a vow by saying, I take a vow that this is prohibited to me, right? By comparing it to what is written in the Torah, right? That is valid. Uh, what about by saying, by this Torah scroll, I will do X or I will not do Y. Uh, the Gemara says this is invalid. Why? Uh, the Ran actually explains that he means by the parchment, right? Not by the words that are written in this Torah, but by the physical uh, parchment. And that is something sacred, but it's not an effective oath and therefore it doesn't work. But however, if you say by what is written in this Torah, that is valid. Um, okay, let's, uh, there, then there's a discussion. What if you're holding the Sefer Torah, uh, then maybe the language that you use, uh, is, is more lenient and it still creates a valid oath. Let's go to the next Mishnah. Uh, the Mishnah says, let my sleeping be prohibited with the, with the language of konam. Again, konam is another language of a vow. Um, or my speaking, right? My walking. This connects to what we, we did at the beginning, right? My sleeping, my walking. Um, what about, uh, right? Sleeping with my wife should be permitted, prohibited to me. Um, the, the Gemara says that the, that the Mishnah says that is a valid vow. Um, the Gemara asks, right? How does this work? Um, what happens if, if you say, uh, um, okay, we're going to now talk about conditional vows. What does that mean? I say, I take a vow that I can't sleep today if I sleep tomorrow. What does that mean? Right? I'm going on a two day trip. So I want to make sure that I don't sleep today. Um, so, right. I want to make sure that right, I'm going to sleep tomorrow and I'm not going to sleep today. So I say, I can't sleep today if I sleep tomorrow. So now um, it's only going to work retroactively, right? Because I don't know what, I can't do something today based on what I'm going to or not going to be doing tomorrow. So how does that work? So there's a machloket here, um, right? Some say, are you allowed to sleep today or are you not allowed to sleep today, right? So the question is, um, 
can you sleep today or not, right? Are we worried that maybe you're not going to fulfill what you have to do tomorrow or not, right? Then the, the Gemara says, what if you take it a different way? What if you say, I can't sleep tomorrow if I sleep today? That one is better, right? Everyone agrees that you can sleep today because it's you're affecting what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, the other way is a little bit more complicated. Okay, DAF 15. Um, again, the top of the DAF tells us that we need to be concerned when there is a stipulation, right? A tnai. When we make a tnai, when we stipulate if A, then B. So the question is, do we need to be concerned for the outcome? And, and the Gemara says that we do have to be concerned. However, um, but with prohibitions of a neder, we're not concerned. Right? Again, as we spoke about in the beginning of the Masechet, when someone takes a vow, uh, they're going to take it very seriously. We hope that they're going to take it very seriously. Um, and therefore, um, a, perf- a person will be very careful to not violate one's vow, and therefore you don't have to be concerned, and therefore you can sleep today if, right, and you'll make sure tomorrow that you can or cannot sleep. I don't remember which way it went, but, right, you, you'll you be careful to do the things that you wanted to do tomorrow. Um, okay, if you were listening carefully to the Mishnah, you might have been confused because we just said that the Mishnah said, right, I'm taking a vow that I won't sleep, right? What did we say? That's not a vow, right? So the Gemara says to us, What's our Mishnah referring to, right? If it's about sleeping, that's not a neder, right? That's not a vow. It's a shvu'ah. It's an oath. And you're using the word konam. Konam is vow. So the Gemara says, you're right. It must be that we're talking about what we mentioned before, right? My eyes will not sleep, right? Uh, my mouth will not, will not speak. That's the only way to create a vow, uh, in this scenario. Um, the Gemara then tells us, and I, again, I think this is extremely important when we're talking about the role of uh, neder, of vows, that when you make a vow, uh, it needs to be uh, limited in time in order to make it feasible. What does that mean? You cannot take a vow that I will never sleep for the next month, right? No such thing. Right? It says you, that if you're talking about sleep, it has to have a time limit, right? Because if your vow is impossible to fulfill, then it's not binding. So that's really important to understand, right? We might think, and again, this is an important concept in this masechet. Our words have great power, uh, and weight, right? They can affect what I do, what I eat, what I say. Um, but, uh, it needs to be within reason. And if it's not within reason, then it's not binding. Uh, therefore, our Mishnah must have a time limit, says the Gemara, even though it wasn't mentioned. Um, therefore, it must be that you said, right, I can't sleep today if I sleep tomorrow, right? Again, we need to make sure that it is limited. Um, therefore, right, if he doesn't sleep today, he can't be in violation of the vow tomorrow. Um, if he does sleep today, now he's, he's subjecting himself to a possible violation tomorrow. And again, that's going to be a competing, um, a competing value. On one hand, we do not want to create a scenario where we are limited in the things we, we can do and say. On the other hand, when we do do that, the Gemara is very, uh, quick to say that you'll take it very seriously. So we have both of those values. Um, okay, let's continue. Right? Or maybe the, Mish- the Mishnah means that the vow is about sleeping, right? Again, we said maybe it was about your eyes, your mouth, your hands, but maybe the Mishnah really is about sleeping. And maybe then it's only forbidden on a biblical, on a rabbinic level, dirabanan, right? Again, a vow on an on a biblical level is only on an object, but maybe, says the Gemara, maybe um, it could uh, affect a person on a rabbinic level. Um, let's say someone has a custom of forbidding something, uh, right? This is, we see this sometimes uh, to enhance the tshuva process, the redemptive process, the uh, repentant process, um, maybe also maybe the redemptive process, but um, when a person wants to strengthen themselves, um, maybe they want to say, oh, I'm going to forbid something to, to myself. And it's a custom maybe that they have every year. Um, this actually then becomes a vow, even 
even though you haven't necessarily verbalized what you're going to do, the fact that you have done this repeatedly creates an obligation. I think this is something that we're familiar with, right? When we have certain customs, in order to maybe change that custom, you would have to do hatarat nadarim, right? You would have to annul the vow. Um, so again, it's important to understand how customs fall into this category of a vow and an obligation. Um, what happens if a husband, right, a husband says to his wife um, before Pesach, he says, you cannot have any benefit from me, right, konam, that's the word that he uses, till Pesach, right, so let's say it was just Purim, and he says, you cannot have any benefit from my household, um, Unless, right, um, if you go and visit your father's house, till Sukkis, right? So, uh, again, seems to be a controlling husband, red flag. But let's say the husband says, I don't want you visiting your parents' house till Sukkis. So, uh, you cannot, right? And if you do, so you can't have any benefit from my things till Pesach. Now, if you're following, right, Sukkis comes way after Pesach. So how does this work, right? So, the, the Gemara says that if she goes before Pesach, right, she was not supposed to. Let's say she goes before Pesach, right, she can't have any benefit till Pesach. Um, and that seems to imply that if she didn't go, she can have benefit. So that seems to imply we're not nervous that, you know, in summer vacation, she's going to go visit her parents. And now retroactively, she did something wrong. The Gemara seems to imply we're not concerned then the, the Gemara says, no, if she wants to get benefit, um, then um, she, it, it, she, we have to actually, we say that she cannot get benefit, even through Sukkot, because I don't know what's going to happen, uh, sorry, till Pesach, because I don't know what's going to happen till Sukkot. Um, what about the opposite case, where he says, you can't have benefit till Sukkot, if you go visit your parents by Pesach, right? He doesn't want to spend Pesach with his in-laws. So he says, right, you cannot have any benefit till Sukkot if, if you go uh, by Pesach. So again, here, right, Pesach comes before Sukkot. So now it's a little bit easier to understand, right? If she goes before Pesach, so she is forbidden to uh, benefit from him. But she can go after Pesach because that was the time limit that he gave her. Um, next, right? Someone says, this bread is forbidden today if I go to whatever place tomorrow. Again, the stipulation is tomorrow, but has an effect today, right? If he eats it, right, he can't go tomorrow to that place, right? So that means that if he goes, so now if he goes, he's transgressed his vow, right, retroactively. So he's desecrating his word. So that's problematic. Um, next, a man forbids relations, right? He says, right, we cannot sleep together. Um, but the Gemara says, wait a minute, how do you, how do you do this? It's, isn't it an obligation from the Torah to have relations with your wife? So again, he forbids the benefit of relations with his wife, uh, and, or he, he prevents he prohibits his own benefit, so then that is okay. Um, if he does prohibit relations, we actually force him to go over, right, to, to break this, right? We force her to have relations with him because he is not allowed to prohibit uh, their, their intimate relations. Uh, that is not allowed. Okay, next Mishnah at the bottom of 15, right? A person says, I take an oath that I won't sleep or speak, or walk, right? This is valid. Again, oath, shvu'ah, this works because it's on the person, uh, and therefore he's not allowed to do the, the, the things that he said. Uh, korban, right? Uh, a sacrifice that I won't eat from you. Um, this is, uh, again, invalid, and he can eat because, again, um, right, ha-korban, right? Here it's Again, either a double negative, uh, and therefore he can eat. Okay, the top of uh, 16 tells us that it's a machloket, um, 
Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Huda, if there is a distinction between saying the word korban or ha-korban, right? Again, we saw this before, uh, whether the, the language makes a difference or not. Next, Mishnah. Um, I take an oath that I won't eat from you, right? Ha or hai shvua, right? I say behold, right? Behold, uh, right? An oath. I won't eat from you. Um, so that works. Or, right? I am not restricted by an oath for the things I don't eat from you. Again, super complicated, um, right? All of these are valid and you are now making that item prohibited. Um, let's see the Gemara, right? Again, ha shvua, right? Ha shvua she'ochal lach, right? That um, this implies that I'm taking a vow that I won't eat from you, right? So therefore, uh, you cannot eat from that person. Um, but the next Mishnah says that when you take a shvua that I will eat, it means I will eat, right? I, I, t- I promise or whatever I take, I swear that I'm going to eat, uh, right? I'm going to drink this water. That sounds like I'm going to drink this water. So how could we say that here when we said, ha shvua she'ochalach, that I will eat, how is that saying that I won't eat? Um, so the Gemara explains, really, we can have both meanings, right? It depends on the context, and this is going to be a theme throughout our Masechet. We need to understand the context by which these statements were made. Um, or, says the, the, the Gemara, she'uchal, right, that I will eat, can mean she'i'uchal, that I won't eat. Eat, right? And therefore it means I'm taking a vow that I will not eat. Uh, and again, our Mishnah holds that she'uchal, right? That I will eat, um, only has one meaning, uh, and it means that I will not eat, even though that's not what the words mean. So that's just important to understand. Okay. Next Mishnah. Uh, we are now going to compare oaths, right? Shvua versus Neder versus vows. Um, so the Gemara says, uh, oh, here's the sukkah. I thought we did it last week. So here's the sukkah, right? Konam, I take a vow, right? The, the sukkah that I built, meaning I am prohibiting the sukkah from me, uh, or my lulav, right? This is valid, meaning you cannot now sit in your sukkah. You have to go to your neighbor's sukkah. It doesn't mean you can't do the mitzvah of sukkah. It means the actual sukkah is prohibited from you or the lulav, um, right? So that works uh, as a neder, right? But it does not work as an oath, right? A shvua, as we mentioned previously, you cannot take a shvua against a uh, mitzvah, uh, and therefore it would be invalid. Um, okay, all right, next. The, so the Gemara continues, that the Gemara, that was the Mishnah, the Gemara tells us, oaths are more chamur, right, more stringent, because you can say, right, again, I swear an oath not to sleep, not to drink, right? We said they're on the person, on the gavra, uh, and therefore uh, it works but it doesn't work for a vow. So here is the source. How do I know um, that you cannot take an oath on a mitzvah, right? The verse says, lo yachel dvaro, you cannot desecrate your own words, but you can for a mitzvah, right? If you take an oath Against a mitzvah, you you desecrate your own vote, your own oath, and you do the mitzvah. But you can do it for a neder, um, right? If you say the benefit from this sukkah is. Uh, again, is konam to me, is prohibited to me. Again, we're talking about the object, uh, and therefore it is valid, right? It's focused on the sukkah, uh, and it works. Um, if you take an oath, if you say, I, right, I will not get any benefit from the sukkah. I'm focusing on the I, on the me, on the, on the gavra. Uh, and therefore, um, right, again, mitzvot are obligations of a person. Therefore, the neder works because it's on the object as opposed to the shvua doesn't work because it's on the person. Um, and, um, 
Okay, let's go to the next Mishnah on Daf 17. Uh, the Mishnah tells us you can make a vow. Um, oh, okay, you can make a vow within a vow, right? What does that mean? Not a dream within a dream, but right, a vow within a vow. How does that work? Um, it doesn't work. Okay, so that works for a vow, but it doesn't work for an oath. And the Mishnah is going to explain, right? I can say, I will be a Nazir if I if I eat this bread or, right, I take an oath that I will be a Nazir if I eat bread, right? So again, if he eats the bread, then he needs to, ah, sorry, he says it twice, right? I will be a Nazir if I eat this bread. I will be a Nazir if I eat this bread, right? He says it twice. So what happens? Let's say he eats the bread. He now has to be a Nazir Twice. What does that mean? One after another. Um, but if he says the same thing with the language of a shvua, of an oath, it doesn't work, right? And there's a concept of there, right? Ein shvua chal achar shvua. There's no such thing as uh, one shvua after the other, but there is for a vow. Um, and the Gemara is going to explain that basically, um, the second vow kind of stays there in suspension. He does the first one. The second, the, as soon as the first one finishes, right, the second one comes into place. And now he is a Nazir twice, um, right? So generally, uh, the, the Gemara is going to explain in a minute, but uh, a minimum amount of time to be a Nazir. This is, of course, the next Masachat. So when we get there, you'll now know everything. Um, a Nazir, the minimum amount of time is 30 days. So if you do not specify a time, then it's 30 days. So if you say, I'll be a Nazir, I'll be a Nazir twice. So now he has to be a Nazir for 60 days, right? 30 and 30. So let's see that in the Gemara. Um, Rav Huna explains, right? One opinion is that he must say, I'll be a Nazir today and I'll be a Nazir tomorrow, right? So the Gemara here is... Um, I would say, uh, clarifying. What did the Mishnah mean? I'll be a Nazir, I'll be a Nazir. Rav Huna says, uh-uh, that doesn't work if you just say the words twice. That's invalid. But if you say, I'll be a Nazir today and I'll be a Nazir tomorrow, that is valid. Um, if you said it one after the other today twice, that does not work. That's according to Rav Huna. Shmuel says, based on a verse, that even if you said today twice, it does work, right? And that was the, the suspension idea. So the Gemara tries to disprove Rav Huna uh, numerous times, uh, right? Rav Huna explains that his case is today and then tomorrow. And as I mentioned, it's an overlapping vow, right? The parallel case means, meaning that uh, if you said today twice, that wouldn't work because I've already taken on today, right? Rav Huna says it has to be today and then tomorrow because I'm adding on, right, some time and therefore it's um, double. Uh, but otherwise it wouldn't work. He says, what's the parallel case of an oath? Um, that The parallel case would be, I swear I won't eat figs and I won't eat grapes and figs, right? So this is invalid. It doesn't work because it's it's impossible to violate the second oath without violating the first one, right? And therefore, the second becomes repetitive and therefore it's invalid. It doesn't work. Or it does work because the second one, we added grapes, right? You said figs twice, but I added grapes. So therefore it's valid. Um, and here, uh, Rav Huna doesn't hold according to this and it would say that it is invalid, right? If one vows to be a Nazir twice, after finishing the first 30 days, he needs to um, separate his sacrifice. But now what happens if he gets the first vow annulled? Not sure why you'd want to do it because you already did almost everything. The last step is to bring your sacrifice. But let's say he's like, you know what? Oh, this was all a mistake. I want to annul the first vow. Then, this is very cool, right? Since the first Nizirut, right, the first uh, being a Nazir period doesn't exist anymore, right? Again, if you look at it like this, if you get rid of this one, this one falls into place. And now it's as if he did the second Nizirut already because he was a Nazir for 30 days. And he can actually use this sacrifice 
for his, right, second Nizirut, and now he's finished, right? So that seems to prove this case of one above the other. Now, the Gemara says, right, this seems to say um, that it's not today and then tomorrow, right? This seems to disprove Rav Huna because we're saying that it's the same vow. And uh, the Gemara says, no, uh, you can say today and tomorrow. So he brings the sacrifice instead of bringing it today, he brings it tomorrow, right? Because it's it's one day after, right? That the, the vow started the next day. Uh, Daf 18, um, right? Again, or the option is that maybe he took the vow simultaneously and then that would work. Um, right? It says in the verse on Daf 18, uh, the verse says, you, if you become a Nazir, the verse says, Nazir lehazir, right? And it's a double language. And that proves that you can take on a two vows of Nizirut simultaneously, right? So I will be a, I'm not sure what the language is exactly, right? I will be a double Nazir, uh, right? Uh, that does work according to the Gemara. An oath, Right, we started with which one is more stringent. So an oath is more stringent than a vow because the Torah says Hashem won't absolve someone who takes an oath. Uh, and this is uh, just a pet peeve. I, I, you know, you come around their kids who say, I swear to God. And then don't swear to God. Don't do that. Um, right. If you take an oath, um, God says, right, even if you do it, it's not good, right? And God will not absolve someone who takes an oath. Uh, the run here discusses that, right, a neder can take effect on an oath, right? We talked about, can you take a double neder? We said, yes, you cannot take a double oath. Um, the run here has a whole discussion about different um, combinations. What about a neder on an oath or an oath on a neder? Uh, it's a really interesting run, so you can go look that up. Um, Okay, right, we said shvua on top of a shvua does not work, but if he annuls the first one, then the second one does go into effect. Okay, next Mishnah, Andaf 18. Um, when someone makes a regular, uh, uh, a stam neder, we'll see what that means, um, meaning we're unclear exactly what they Im implied. So then we're going to be stringent. Again, we take people's words very seriously. We're going to be stringent, meaning if I'm not sure how to interpret it. But if the person right can interpret it in a lenient way, the person who took the vow says, no, 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 that's not what I meant. I meant this, then that's okay. Meaning a person can be lenient on themselves. If we don't know the intent, uh, then we need to be stringent. Uh, so here are some examples, right? Um, it should be, right here, we're going to see examples of ambiguous statements, and we have to understand how to interpret them, right? So uh, it should be like salted meat, right? So what does that mean? Or it should be like the wine libation. Um, he could have meant like a sacrifice, uh, and then that would be valid, and then the item would be prohibited. Or he could have meant uh, things that you give, right? When else do you do a libation to idolatry, right? And we said, if you compare it to idolatry, so then it's invalid and the thing becomes uh, mutar. So we say, we assume that he meant the more stringent thing, that he was trying to make it prohibited and the item becomes prohibited. And the Gemara goes through um, different uh, different uh, um Examples of this, again, where the word used is something that could be uh, interpreted as prohibited, uh, or it could be something that is permitted, uh, and we don't know what he meant. We assume, again, in all of the cases, if he didn't specify, we assume that uh, he meant, the person meant to make it prohibited, and the item becomes prohibited. Um here, at the end of the Mishnah, Rabbi Huda says that if you use the word truma, right, it actually depends where you live in Israel. That's how we interpret it. And I think that this is just interesting in terms of even, first of all, linguistics, but also the culture. Um, Rabbi Huda explains there were people, there are different regions in Israel that were more familiar with different things. Uh, and we have to assume that you meant, right, you speak in your own right? Lingo, right? You, you know, you say soda if you're from New York and you say pop from Chicago. You, you have to know where you're from. Uh, so Rabbi Huda says that if you use the word truma 
in Yehuda, in the region of Judah, which is uh, the center or the south of Israel, uh, then it becomes prohibited uh, because that's what's going to the Kohen. That's what they were familiar with. If you use it up north in the Galil, it would be permitted because uh, you would be talking about something that is permitted and not forbidden. Um, again, the same thing uh, with... Um, um, with the word cherem, again, in Yehuda, it would actually be permitted because uh, that was the region and that's what they were familiar with, as opposed to in the Galil, it would be prohibited because they were not familiar with cherem of uh, the priest, which was permitted. So again, it depends where you live, uh, whether something is going to be prohibited or not. Uh, the Gemara now um, says that um, in another Mishnah, we have that if there's a doubt involving being a Nazir, we actually treat it leniently. Uh, but our Mishnah says we treat it stringently. How does that work? Um, so the, the Gemara says, um, again, uh, there, there seems to be a parallel case, right? Let's say you sanctify all of your animals in your house, right? Either domesticated, both domesticated and wild animals. The, the Mishnah says that um, you are also sanctifying a specific animal called a koi. A koi in the Gemara is used often as something that is... Um, Safik, right? We're not sure what it is, right? Either it's like a mix of a, a, a behima and a chaya of a domesticated and an undomesticated animal, or it's its own bria, it's its own creation, uh, meaning it's its own thing. Um, but we're not sure what this is. So let's say I say all domesticated and undomesticated. Do I mean this animal? Is it included or not? Right. And it's a, it's a machloket if we include sfekot, right? Things that we're unsure about. Um, are they, uh, are they included? Um, so DAF 19 says again, um, um, if there's doubt, again, it goes through different examples of when we have doubt, safek, and are we more stringent or are we more lenient? Uh, so we have this case with the koi. We have another case with bechor, with the, the firstborn animal. Uh, we have another case with doubt if a liquid became impure. And again, in some of the cases, uh, we are lenient. In some of the cases, we are stringent. Um, maybe, and there, there are distinctions between these different, um, these different cases. And some of them uh, are not necessarily parallel to our case, right? So if a person and says, I will be a Nazir if this pile of grain is, you know, uh, two tons, right? Again, now we have a stipulation, a tnai, and we don't know what's going to be, right? You have to weigh what's in this pile of uh, produce or grain, and then we're going to find out um, if you're going to be a Nazir or not. What happens when you get to the, you know, you get to the field, the grain is gone, Right. It was lost. It was stolen. It's not here. So what do we do? Do we say, oh, it probably had two tons and now he's a Nazir or not? Right. What did the person mean? Now, obviously, the easiest thing would be to ask the person. But let's say we can't ask the person or the person doesn't remember. Right. So here and we're going to see this throughout the Masechet, um, the, the, the rabbis are trying to understand what is the right the rational thing to do, or what would most people do, right? Are most people, when they take upon themselves this vow, are they saying, yeah, that's what I want. I wanted to be a Nazir, and I assumed it had two tons, so that's what I did. Or, not necessarily. I wasn't sure. If it did, then I would be a Nazir. And if it didn't, then I wouldn't be a Nazir. Um, so that's actually a machloket, right? Rabbi Yehuda says he isn't a Nazir. When we have a safek, when we're not sure, we're lenient. Rabbi Shimon says he is a Nazir, right? He is, we're stringent. Why? We assume he intended to be a Nazir. Um, as opposed to the other one, uh, right? Rabbi Huda would say, uh, he didn't intend to be a Nazir unless it was for sure, right? So again, safek, when we're not sure, what is the person really thinking, right? So in general, um, Rabbi Huda holds that a person does intend to apply the isur, the prohibition, uh, in a doubtful situation. However, in this specific case, right, we're going to be more stringent, uh, than the, ah, sorry, in this specific case, 
when the safek, when we're not sure, if that's going to be more stringent than the definite case, then the person doesn't subject himself to the safek. Meaning, he said, I'll be, a, I'll be a nazir if there's two tons. He didn't know if it was two tons or not. Now, if he's not sure and he takes upon himself being a nazir, so he actually can't... um end his nizirut because we're, we don't know if he really was a nazir, right? Now, the, the way to end being a nazir is to bring a sacrifice. You can't bring a sacrifice if you don't need to bring a sacrifice. So this is extremely uh, uh, severe case. And therefore, Rabbi Yehuda says, I'm not going to make this person a nazir if he can never end it. And therefore, we're going to be lenient. Um, Okay, um, let's go uh, again, right? If you can only be a Nazir through, uh, so the Gemara actually concludes that you can only be a Nazir through a clear statement. It needs to be extremely clear. Therefore, if you make it a condition on something that is an unknown fact, then if it can be very verified later, some say it's valid, but others say it's not. Meaning I have to know right now if I'm going to be a Nazir or not. Uh, and basically here we see the three different opinions on um, whether one imposes a prohibition on oneself, even in a doubtful situation in a safek. Okay, uh, the last daf for today, uh, daf 20. Um, the Mishnah tells us that um, the Mishnah here gives examples of ambiguous vows that later are explained as not a vow, right? Remember we said that if you can explain it in a different way, so then we're lenient, right? And therefore, we accept that uh, that ex- that explanation and the vow is void, meaning you do not uh, need to keep the vow. It is not prohibited and it is uh, invalid. And it also does not need to be annulled, right? Even if you might've thought in the beginning, since we weren't sure, and he had to keep it, maybe I would have to annul the vow. The Mishnah says, no, you do not have to annul the vow. So here are some examples, right? This should be cherem to me. Now, he could say, no, I didn't mean cherem like the word vow. I meant cherem hayam, which means a uh, fishnet, right? So I don't know, again, why you would say this. Um, but again, we believe the person. Uh, again, there's a lot of trust here. We assume that the person is not going to... Um, you know, make themselves transgress prohibitions. So this becomes an invalid vow. Um, right. Uh, Rabbi Meir says that if they do go to a sage to annul the vow, we actually punish them and we are stringent with them. So the Gemara is going to explain what that means. Uh, the sages say, no, no, no. Uh, we actually find another way to annul the vow. If they try to annul the vow, uh, the, the language in the Gemara is potrin petach, which literally means like to open an opening. Uh, we find a way to annul the vow in a different way. And then we teach the person not to speak this way, right? With bekalut rosh, with levity, right? And again, I think this is going to be a theme, right? Don't take your words, right? I swear to God, no, don't say that, right? Don't take your words lightly. And the Chachamim are saying we have to teach people that they should not speak this way. Okay, let's see the Gemara, right? The Gemara tells us that uh, a Torah scholar doesn't need to annul their vows. They understood that, you know, uh, that the, the way they should speak. However, an Amha Aretz, right, someone who is uh, not so familiar with uh, the laws, uh, then they get punished. What does punishment mean? Uh, Rabbi Meir says, you make the person observe the vow for the amount of time that he violated it, right? Again, um, if, if the person gave themselves a certain amount of time, we actually make them uh, keep that vow, even though they don't need to. Um, and then only then we annul it, right? And this way you remember, oh yeah, one time I said that, I shouldn't have said that, right? And that's how you learn uh, not to... Um, not to use these words lightly, right? The sages say, no, uh, we don't punish the Amha'aret, um, and we can annul, annul the vow with just charata, which means regret. We don't need the petach. We don't have to find an opening. We could just say, he can say, oh, I, I didn't realize it was going to be so hard, uh, and therefore we annul the vow. Um, 
and uh, and that's what the Chachamim say. Uh, there's a Brayta that says that um, you shouldn't, right, don't do certain actions. Ah, the, the Brayta says there are certain actions that if you do them, they're going to lead to sin, right? So the, the beginning of the Brayta is the context, right? Don't take a vow, because if you do, it's going to lead to transgressing an oath, right? If you're a person who always says, I promise, I promise, I promise, you're going to end up saying, I swear to God, right? And that's going to get you in trouble. So don't, um, don't do this because it will uh, lead to uh, taking on uh, uh, things that will actually get in trouble. Uh, th- there are other examples in this Brita, and uh, famously, the end of the Brita is uh, Lo Tarbe, right? Don't speak excessively with a woman. It's going to lead to uh, inappropriate behavior. Don't look at a woman frequently. It will lead to sin. Um, here, uh, the Gemara explains it as uh, either looking gazing for a long time too frequently at certain areas. Uh, the Gemara gets into that a little bit. Uh, and um, the Gemara continues with describing um, how the angels told them that uh, there are f- certain physical el- ailments that were a result of inappropriate behavior during relations. Um, and here uh, they, they were talking about different things that you should not do while having intimate relations. Uh, and it leads to um, physical ailments, either of the children, of the people themselves, uh, or, right, interestingly enough, Chachamim say at the end of this Gemara, that's not true, that really uh, anything that the couple wants to do in their bedroom is okay, it's mutar. Um, Obviously, uh, everything needs consent. And again, I've said this before, and I will say it again. I think the Gemara is extremely uh, progressive and beyond its time uh, that even, you know, uh, 1500 years ago, they were talking about consent. Uh, so it is important to understand that there must be consent from both sides. Um, and since this is the topic, the Gemara continues talking about um, appropriate uh, ways to have intimate relations. Uh, a, the spouse cannot be thinking about another person. Uh, they cannot have, um, while, while having relations, uh, there's a list of nine circumstances in which if someone has relations in these circumstances, uh, the children that come from that, uh, from that couple will be either rebellious or, uh, they will transgress. Uh, and here again, I think it is extremely important to understand what the Gemara is saying here, right? That if a husband and wife are having relations, but she is afraid of him, or he is violating her, or he hates her, right? They are not allowed to have relations in those instances, even if they are married, right? One could say, no, 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 it's in the framework of marriage, so it's okay. The Gemara says no. Uh, And I think that that is uh, extremely important to understand um, that there is a framework by which uh, we discuss uh, intimacy, uh, it's important to understand that according to Chazal, right, according to Judaism, intimacy is a beautiful thing, uh, and it should not be a violent thing. It should not be, right, he cannot, the, it says here he talking to the man, but it means both of them, right, one of, they shouldn't be in a fight. Uh, you can't be drunk, right, meaning we have to make sure that there is consent. Um, and uh, uh, and therefore, I think it's really uh, incredible to see that uh, the Gemara is speaking about all parts of our lives, uh, you know, from the very public to the very intimate, and how they are guided uh, through the laws of the Torah. So wishing, uh, with that, we finished the second chapter. We did the whole uh, parak together. Wishing everyone a wonderful week. Shavua Tov. Uh, we will meet again next week uh, at our regular time on Tuesday uh, at 9 p.m. Israel time. Uh, so looking forward to seeing you all next week. Have a wonderful, uh, have a wonderful week. Thank you, everyone.